0: Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Nick Davenport, a.k.a. Mr. Mental Muscle. And we're here on the Mental Muscle Podcast. We're going live. I'm here on IG taking questions. If anyone wants to ask anything on mental health, brain training, mental performance, anything, all, all things go. And i am also got a few topics that I have. Some people submitted some questions earlier, so we'll go through all of this. So it's an open space. So, oh, got one right off the bat. So what's worse? Mental fatigue? or muscular fatigue? Very good question, and the person who asked this, she, she actually is a, a pro fighter in a pillow fighting championship, actually. Check that out if you haven't, Kindle. So mental fatigue versus physical fatigue. I don't really think it's a better or worse in this scenario because they both have their downfalls. Because when you look at, say, physical fatigue, if my muscle endurance and I'm tired, I can't contract anymore, I can't keep going, I can't push forward physically, I don't care how mentally tough or mentally strong you are. The body can't go. But on the other hand, if you're mentally fatigued, you can't put those thoughts together. You're going to miss things. You're not going to be as alert, attentive. You're going to make mistakes that shouldn't really be happening. So is there a better or worse? I'm not too sure. But if I had to choose to answer your question, I would say I can't really choose because going back to my point, because with mental fatigue and physical fatigue, It's like, if we're saying all things are level, let's say everything's level far as strength, speed, athleticism, and that's all out there, then I'll say mental fatigue, because then you can't execute, you're not doing what needs to be done. So I guess I'll go with mental fatigue for that one. So good question, great way to start it off. So if anyone has any other questions, feel free to ask them here. What's up everybody uh, who just tuned in. Now, in the meantime, while we look for more questions, I have a question from a guy who's following me named H. Mahir. I hope I said that right. And he asked about childhood trauma affecting us as adults. Can it be deprogrammed? Can we break out of it? Now, trauma, that's a word I see used a lot. Trauma is, I don't want to say it's a buzzword because it is a thing. Like trauma is a real thing. There's physical trauma, obviously, blunt force trauma. So trauma is a real thing. And then psychologically, trauma deals with, How past events or experiences can have a long lasting effect that can almost follow us and haunt us and come back to us in the worst scenarios when they're re triggered. Now, in the general sense, you look at things like war or maybe even sexual assault, things of that nature, a disaster. These are the conventional things we think about trauma, but it doesn't necessarily have to be those things. You can look at trauma as something like a very hard loss, it could be literally losing someone that is close to you to death. It could be losing them to that; they're just not in your life anymore. So there's different levels to it. Now, obviously, if you look at someone who lost someone to a, a, a war or something like that, versus someone who had a bad breakup, I wouldn't say you dismiss either one's feelings. But obviously, there's more to each one. But when you think about trauma, as to used more colloquially nowadays, a lot of people talk about more so things that are day to day. Because think about just going back to the term like trauma; it's called PTSD, which is post-traumatic tra- stress disorder. And we're not going to go to the Fully clinical side, but we talk about stress. What is stress? Stress is anything that changes homeostasis. That's the body, the body's balance, right? So if you if I was just a stand-up out of the chair, that's technically stress because I'm having to contract muscles, have to get up. Now it's not high levels of stress, but it's still stress. Now, going back to PTSD or just trauma in general, that stress is associated with that event. Now, this is where cognitive function comes in because like long-term memory. Like when we have those triggers, right, that's us remembering the last time something similar happened. And this is almost like a defense mechanism because when that event occurs and that trigger occurs, it says, hey, we were here before. And last time we were here, it wasn't good. It didn't feel okay. I don't want to go through it again. So we want to make sure it doesn't happen. But sometimes we get overprotective and that defense mechanism works too well. And the next thing you know, things get out of hand and now we don't want to grow. Now you heard of post-traumatic stress, but what about post-traumatic Growth, growing from the event that may have triggered you or hurt you or harmed you some kind of way. You can also go the other way, going back to the war example. There's people who fight in these same wars who come back and not say they're unaffected, but they adjust much better than some others. And what can go into a lot of things can go into that. Some people use different coping strategies. Some people go into uh, substance abuse. Some people get into other things. Some people go into their job, their career, their passion. It's just a matter of how you cope. But that's why it's good at building. These strategies so you can adapt. Because going back to stress, we use something like fitness as a perfect example because that type of stress is a you stress. You stress is good stress, it's productive, it has a reward, an outcome, it builds confidence. So, something like getting a new drop, job, that's stress, but it gets an outcome of you making more money. You have more responsibility, but you get paid more. Now, distress, that's more so things that take away, like losing your job. Now, you're not getting money. So, these are pretty cut and dry explanations but at the end of the day stress trauma you can grow from it so going back to the fitness example you grow from that stress and you get better now it's not as cut and dry as i'm saying it obviously a lot of work that can go into that and learning different strategies and coping mechanisms but you have to be able to do them now i just saw a question come in how can i train the brain for better reaction time for boxing yoga helps with achieving bodily homeostasis oh cool she used the term homeostasis. Shout out to Yoga Ninja. Oh, sorry. He's using your home, homeostasis, Yoga Ninja 954. So I can't see the screen. I'm far away from me. More money, more problems. <laughs> That's a good one. But thanks, uh, Yoga Ninja. So basically, reaction time for boxing. So let's talk about different types of reactions. So a lot of times when people think about reaction time, they think of something called simple reaction. They're thinking about Just see it and then go. And this is one of my specialties. That's how a lot of you know me. Mind, body, one, mental, muscle. Obviously, I got more aspects, but the reaction time thing, that's pretty much my niche too. So simple reaction is you see the stimulus, whatever the cue is, let's use, say, like a green light when driving, you go. Simple as that. Now, there's two more that doesn't get talked about too much. That's choice reaction and recognition reaction. So choice reaction is kind of self-explanatory. You have a choice and option of more than one thing. So you have at minimum two options to choose from. So if you use a light example, green means go, red means stop. So we got to understand which one we're going to attend to. So that's a choice. The more options you have, the harder it is, the higher the cognitive load, the more you got to think about. So you want to add more stimuli, add more choices. So you have five choices. There's a lot more to choose from. Now it could be simply as a go, no, go, which kind of goes into recognition a little bit, which is the third one I'm talking about. But Choice reaction is a way to add more cognitive load, meaning more to think about when doing reaction drill. Now, recognition reaction, that goes into more so what does this color mean or what does this symbol mean? So if I say with some of my drills, I have a cue, and since you're a boxer, I'll use this example just for you. And I use a lot with some of my top tier fighters, like say Dustin Poirier, and each color will represent a certain combination. So say... Red is jab cross, all right? So we know red is jab cross. Now some working memory is coming in there too because you have to remember what's what. Then green is cross hook. So let's use just those two. So now not only are we making a choice, we have to recognize what color means what. So you see how this adds more load? So those are the simplest three things you can take away from being better at reaction time is one simple reaction, see it and go, two, you have choice reaction, multiple options, make the right decision or decisions. And then three, recognition reaction, which is what does this stimuli or the stimulus represent? And then I make an option off of that. All right. So reaction time, like I said, it's a good one. But working memory, I actually look at working memory as probably the, the main forefront. Like if we use it as fitness example again, how people say how much you bench or deadlift or squat. I look at working memory like that. So those who aren't familiar with working memory, reaction time is great because the quicker you can attend to the stimulus, the more time you have to make a decision. But working memory is being able to handle all the information in real time to make said decision. So for example, if I hear a phone number, this is probably one of the simplest analogies I can think of, I hear a phone number, this is auditory, but I hear it, 954-708-8792. So I tell you my number, then what do you do next? You sit there and say it over and over in your head, over and over in your head, until you can go write it down or go type it in your phone. That's working memory. And the beauty of why this is important, because the more you can attend to, the more you get. That's to be able to take in the information at once, because you're going to have other things going on, other stimuli. So if you can attend to more things at once, going back to the choices recognition with reaction, the better you can be. So being quick is good, but being able to have a bigger capacity is also good. Oh, shouts out to, oh, Kendall bought a badge. Oh, appreciate that. I've never got one of these before. I never do these lives, So thanks so much. I uh, really appreciate that so much. So yeah, I, I need to do more of these lives. Like I got this recording right here, but I got the podcast with my HD camera going too. So those who miss this, those who are live right now, thanks. But those who miss it, you're going to be watching it live. So let's keep it rolling. Any other questions, like I said, all things go. You can ask about the journey. You can ask about business. That's you know, about people I've worked with. Shouts out to Yoga Ninja Nine Five Four too. I appreciate that. Ooh, I like this question. How does playing first-person shooter games help with reaction time? So I actually have a real-life anecdote that I got to test this out in a real-time situation. So I was doing a gig with. Um, a marketing company called Whistle Sports. I never heard of them, but I, I follow them now. And they have a big following. They post a lot of sports videos and just funny videos. But it's a marketing firm. And they brought me in to work with uh, the Fitlight system. If you don't know about Fitlights, it's a reactionary light system that I use. And they brought me in to do a thing called Athlete versus Gamer. And it was an athlete, Demetrius Johnson, also known as Mighty Mouse, one of the, some say he's the GOAT, best MMA fighters of all time, especially for his weight class. And also uh, a gamer named Zach. Uh, TTG, and they went head-to-head in some of my cognitive and reaction drills, and Rainbow Six, if you're not familiar with that game, it's a first-person shooter. Now, I don't know if it's, it's the same, like, I know there's Fortnite and things like that. I don't think it's in the same category as that, but first-person shooter. So how does it help? Get to your question. How does it help? Good point. So I say it helps tremendously because in that uh, challenge, the gamer beat the athlete. Now... Most people say, oh, right, that athlete has to have a lot of good reaction time because they're seeing real-time stimuli. But when you think about it, think, think about this. Any video game of any kind, especially a shooter game, you're talking about milliseconds. You're talking about maybe two-tenths to three-tenths of a second. Now, to input information for our eyes to take in the, the stimuli, and then it go to the occipital lobe, which is in the back of the brain, to make sense of it, or flip it around and then make sense of it, has come back to the frontal. So that takes about two, three-tenths of a second. So that right there alone is a buffer of time that have to be able to process. And then you have to actually make the actual shot or decision with a fine motor skill, whether it's uh, a controller, depending on what system you play, or a computer. It might be a mouse, a keypad, or some have actual stimulation firearms. So it does help a lot because it's training you to take in the stimuli quicker and you have to have a goal-directed physical, in this case, a fine motor movement. I've seen some of those uh, gamers play, and it's crazy because they're doing this so fast. And it's like, when you think about how fast they're doing it, most people can't even process it, let alone do the full thing at once. So shooting games definitely can help. Video games as a whole can help, but I won't say it's necessarily brain training per se. There is specific skills that go with computer games and video games, especially shooting games that can carry over, but I wouldn't call it brain training specifically. That actually gives me a, a I hope that answers the question, but it actually gives me a good point to segue into because- uh, an associate of mine his name is Dr. Steven Mitroff, and he asked me this question. He doesn't believe in it. He's big on video games, not necessarily being brain training. And this is why. Because brain training is used a lot. The term brain training, I think, is misused just like how trauma gets misused. It's colloquial. Brain training is not just anything that makes you think because everything uses your brain, right? That's pretty straightforward and obvious, right? So it can't just be like we label anything brain training, like reading. Oh, no problem. But like reading and things of that nature, like crossword puzzles, they all involve brain stimuli. But is that really brain training? So like when I see people, for example, do cognitive drills or brain training drills with sport, and they'll have like a, a say, strobe goggles or something like that. And they'll do the the task that's for that sport, but it's with the strobe goggles, which kind of blur your vision periodically like that with through the goggles is that really brain training or is it just doing your sport specific tasks with an extra distractor or some kind of hindrance? Now, can that help? Yes. That's not what I'm saying, but I personally, from my understanding and philosophy is brain training needs to involve like you having that stimulus that has a clear cut cognitive load. Is it working memory? Am I holding multiple aspects of numbers or items or words, whatever it is, or is it uh, cognitive flexibility due to the directions change depending on the stimulus. That's something when uh, people always ask how I come up with my drills, that's how I do it. I got to look first, what is the cognitive or psychological task that this is going to do? i Am looking for something that's going to work on working memory? How much information can I hold? Do I want to do stuff that works on how they adapt to stress and manage self-talk and things that don't, don't go their way? Or do you want to combine those? I do have tasks that combine cognitive and psychological because I'm big on the mindset, sets the tone. I don't care how good you process. I don't care how physically well you are. The the cognitive and the psychological, I should say, the psychological sets the tone so you can even do it. Because let's say you have all the pieces of the puzzle. You're physically ready. You're psychologically kind of ready, but you're cognitively fast and quick to react. But you're a little anxious and you get to the point where you're, you're hyperventilating and you're not focused and you start missing little things. Guess what? I don't care how good you can react. I don't care how well fit you are physically. That sets the tone. And that's just me. Like I have a psych background, so I guess I'm a little bit biased. I'll check my my bias, but that's where I come in from. So that being said, not all things are brain training. It needs to have specific functions. It's not just, matter of fact, I'll go into another segue of this segue. I look at brain and mental health. There's passive and active aspects of mental and brain health. because. A passive aspect would be something like, say, the the Calm app or Headspace, that's passive. You're doing box breathing, meditation, mindfulness, because while it, it takes an action, it's more so you doing the calm breathing and it calms you down, slows your heart rate, activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which is great. We need that. It helps with your recoverability to stress physiologically. So it's a good thing. It has its purpose. But what about when things do get stressful? What are you going to do? You can't always breathe. Be in the moment, right? So what happens when the ish does hit the fans and you're stressing and freaking out? Calm, calming down won't be able to be done. And I would argue most of life is that. We very rarely have to calm stuff. I I'm on the road right now. I've been up since 4 a.m. Eastern time from South Florida, where I'm from. Had a stop in Utah, mountain time, and now I'm in Cali Pacific time. So I've been up since 4 a.m. my time. So I've been up for a long time. So you can safely say that you're not always going to have the best situation. So interactive mental and and brain health because let's look at fitness. Once again, I use a lot of analogy with fitness because I also have that background. I was a former strength coach, trainer, all that good stuff. So think of box breathing, mindfulness stuff, more like mobility and flexibility work because with this type of work, you need it. You need to be able to move in ranges of motions, be flexible, because that that what keeps you safe and prevents injury and allows you to get into the position to do set tasks. So you need that. That's what all the box breathing and more passive things, mindfulness, meditation, that's what that's good for. It's, it's very well needed. I agree. But on the other side, the active mental and brain health stuff needs to be something that puts you in a fight or flight mode. And if you see some of my Kind of conditioning drills, it does just that. And that's why it's so important. That's why my drills, people ask, what's the point of this? That's the number one question I get. I do a lot of uh, events with uh, wellness and corporate wellness, like with etna Insurance, and I see a lot of different demographics, corporate, teachers, police, general population. And the number one question is, what does this do? And my real answer is, it allows me to invoke the fight or flight response, the stress response, in a way that's safe, measurable, and efficient. In a way that I can control it, so it has more controlled implications, internal validity. So I know that this is what made you falter, or this is what made you become less adequate. So that's why I do it. Like At face value, it looks like a brain game or something cool and fun. Great. But I want to see how you adapt when I change the variables or the stimuli. That's what it really comes down to. So kind of random. How long does it take? To catch up on one night's worth of bad sleep, I know sleep plays a huge role in mental health and performance. Very good question. So I am not a sleep expert, but obviously it does play into brain health and mental health. What I do understand about sleep, obviously it plays a real good role because what it does is, like most people understand, sleep is important mostly because it, it, it refreshes our brain. Our brain builds up all this metabolic waste. So think about metabolic waste. This comes back to actually physiology. So if you take an anatomy, physiology, um, there's something called ATP, adenosine triphosphate. So ATP, simply put, is the currency of your, your body. Like think about how you need to pay money to do stuff in life. Your body needs currency to, or energy to do stuff to live. And that's not just physical fitness. Your heartbeat, your respiratory, your brain, all of that takes energy. But guess what? The byproduct of using this energy, it breaks off. So adenosine triphosphate, meaning three. So it breaks off once it's utilized. And guess what? That waste collects. So you have something in your your brain. They're called adenosine receptors. So this waste accumulates these receptors. So you're wired. So your brain will collect this waste. and It'll actually make you fatigued. So someone asked about mental fatigue just kind of goes into this sleep, also goes into it. So what happens is when you're not getting sleep, this builds up, this accumulates, accumulates, and cognitive function goes goes down, Uh, allostatic load, meaning more stressful load that you carry on longer, will increase your heart rate. All these things that you don't want to happen are going to increase, and all things you do want to happen are going to decrease when you're not getting enough sleep. So what happens is when you, you go to sleep, there's something called the glymphatic system. And this is almost like waste management. It's taking out the trash. So you recover, get your six to eight hours, and then it clears it out so you can go again the next day. So that's why sleep is important from that perspective. And to are bringing a, a related topic, kind of um, caffeine. Most people are coffee drinkers, uh, re- energy drinks of all kinds. So what those do, a lot of people don't know this, is they block the adenosine receptors from receiving. So it's not... so this is the misconception. It's not that coffee necessarily gives you energy or caffeine gives you energy, I should say, It's that they block the adenosine receptors. Therefore, you're not going to get as tired. So that kick is really like, okay, I'm ready. I'm good. But you're just not getting tired. And eventually what happens? We all know the answer to this. You crash. So eventually it wears down and that adenosine accumulates and just hits you like a truck. So Getting to your point, I didn't really answer directly your question. I don't know exactly that. I'm big on not going out of my scope, but um check out the online sleep coach. I did a webinar with him. His name's also Nick, so check him out. This is his specialty. So the online sleep coach and his name's Nick. So check him out. He's a cool guy, not just because his name's Nick. So he'll be able to answer that. And he has all types of workshops, content, you name it. So he's a great resource when it comes to sleep. So Thanks for that question. That was very good. But yeah, so uh, this has been pretty interesting. I like this. Uh, I have a few more questions here. Anyone in the, the live has any questions, feel free to put them on screen. I can see them. But uh, another topic I got, no problem, no problem. Another topic or question I got, and this one I can relate to personally, is imposter syndrome. So the person who asked me this, they didn't want me to share the information. But basically, they say, do it with imposter syndrome. And their line of work, they've been doing it for about a decade. And even though they have all this experiment or experience, they still question whether they're good or not. And the thing is, that's not a bad thing. I don't think, I think the problem is not being like feeling like an imposter. The problem is when you let that imposter live with you. Don't let it be your roommate. Don't let it move in. Because I think when you have a little bit of imposter, just a little, it's showing that anxiety, that worry. And it's basically showing that, you actually care about what you're doing. I'm not mad at that because I have it. And I know I care about what I do. I love what I do. So I know for a fact that this imposter syndrome, when I have it, is not the fact that I doubt my abilities or I'm not confident. I don't think that's what it is for me, at least. Now, it could be that for some people, confidence-wise, but I don't think that that's the in-all be-all. I think sometimes it's because you have this notion of some some bit of perfectionism, so that's part of it, too. Because you want things to be a certain way, which is fine too, but it's just that you can't hold yourself to that standard to the 100 percent degree. You know, there's going to be some. It's a spectrum. It's not always going to be 100. It might be 78 sometimes. So I think that's what messes people up. It's not that they're imposters. It's the fact that the standard they they set was never right in the first place. You know, if I was to measure like like if I said if I was going to measure your greatness by your ability to dunk a basketball but you're five, six, and can't jump. Is that really fair to say that you're not great? So I know that's an extreme example, but with imposter syndrome, we're giving these standards of either what we see other people do, what we perceive us to be. Perception is probably our biggest enemy. Forget imposter syndrome, our perception. The beauty of perception, it's influenced by a lot of things. So we're not always getting the best picture of what we think is happening. And that goes a lot of reasons because our brain, even though it's there to help us, it it does the job very well that goes in kind of even cognitive biases right like we make these misconceptions because we assume this is what we're supposed to be now dealing with imposter syndrome remind yourself you are supposed to be there not in a cliche way because obviously if you worked your way there you did what was required you did the 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 standard to get there so obviously you're not just some slouch now if you are some slouch you need to reevaluate yourself I'm, I keep it real with that. If You're not supposed to be there. You're not supposed to be there. And some people aren't. Some people play the fake it till you make it card and they end up indoors that they really weren't ready for. And I've seen this from my athletes. I've seen it from my law enforcement. I've seen it from my business. I have all types of an array of clients, and I've seen it in each one, that they've gotten indoors maybe prematurely. Not saying they shouldn't ever be there, but they got there prematurely. So basically, don't beat yourself up because if you're not supposed to be there, Work to get there. If you are supposed to be there, you are then, you met the standards. Keep doing what you're doing. Have the confidence that, okay, was I enough? Go to the drawing board. Give yourself a day, like 24 hours. Reflect on, it. was I enough? Was this what I was supposed to do? Is this where I'm supposed to be? Because you're gonna have those doubts. That's not the problem. I, I tell people, don't try to eradicate the doubts or erase them. Just know and reinforce, like I said on a, a real yesterday, have a salesman mindset. Someone even said, well, if the product's good enough, it sells itself. I think they kind of missed the point a little bit. But the point wasn't to say the product's good or bad. It's about being aware of what the product is, being educated on what it can do for you, for the, the person consuming it, and know that that's what it is. That, that's it. You're not going to be everything. I think that's the biggest problem why we have problems with our mental health. There's this big void we're trying to fill, and we know we're never going to do it, but yet we put it on us and we play this, this misconception. We hold ourselves to these standards that we shouldn't be. And it's not to say you don't put yourself at a high standard. I'm just saying, be realistic. Be optimistic, but be realistic in your goals. So these are things I think people need to think about too when it comes to you know mental health in general. It's a spectrum. You're going to have dynamic ups. You're going to have downs. And I think from the more mental health side of things, I know I talk about mental performance, cognitive performance, but from the mental health side of things, we kind of gotten away from that because I know it's a big topic now and that's a problem when things become popular, it kind of goes away like a runaway train and then you start seeing it get used so colloquially that it kind of diminishes what it really is. Because I hear people say stuff like self-care, you got to take care of yourself, do the work. All these terms sound like lip service and I actually did a podcast a few weeks ago with uh, an author, Amy Morin, who's a licensed mental health counselor and she has a book called The 13 Things mentally strong people don't do. And in her book, she talks about the things you don't do because we all know do the good stuff, work hard, be focused, have confidence, cool. But what about the stuff we don't do that making us mentally weak? And I asked her specifically this question, what are your thoughts on self-care? And she said she hates, well, not hate, I don't want to say to put words in her mouth, but she said she doesn't like how people use it because they'll say things like, oh, I'm going to cancel on my friends or an appointment because I need to worry about me, self-care. Well, someone who's truly caring about themselves, wouldn't you think they would make time to allot for the room to have to themselves but still fulfill their obligations? Because who wants to be around a person who only puts themselves first? That that, that is the thin line between self-care and just selfishness. You, you don't want to go on the selfishness side. So I think that self-care is not a bad term in itself, but maybe how it's being used because, yes, getting your nails done or sleeping in, that's all great. But self-care is not necessarily about the fun stuff and laying back. Sometimes self-care is about taking the stuff that is going to make you feel bad. I think people shy away from that. Like, we don't like to do things that make us look bad or feel bad. But accountability is key. And it's not just the word that you say to say, oh, I'm accountable. I know what's wrong with me. That's probably this much of the battle. You know what's wrong? Okay. Now, how do you assess it? How do you go about fixing it? Do you practice what you're you're preaching when you say you're going to fix it? That's what accountability really looks like. And I think that's the best self-care. It could look like fun. It could look like chilling. It could look like rest, sleep, whatever. But it also can look like saying, you know what? I didn't do enough this week. I want this goal. I want to graduate college. I want to get this degree. I want to start a new relationship. Whatever it is, being accountable is saying, I didn't do that. I didn't do what was needed of that. So therefore, I am slacking. So I need to take care of myself and get better at it. So these are things I think when people talk about self-care, because going back to Amy Moore, and that book is great. Check it out. Another shameful plug, I guess, is 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. She has numerous books. She has one for women, one for parents, and she has workbooks as well. So check that out, because the don't do, this goes into something called survivorship bias. I talk about this all the time, because a lot of times when people talk about biases or just uh, being what they want to be, goals, achievements, mental toughness. They always look at the winners. We love talking about the winners, but we don't really talk about the ones who didn't make it. That's why they call it survivorship bias. Because think about it. Have you ever seen like a house that was from, say, 1915? You drive by, like, wow, people back then know how to build a house. See, it's still standing. And you look at a house now, and you're like, ah, this is shoddy craftsmanship, cheap materials. It's not like they used to do. Think about this, though. How many houses do you see that were made? From 1915. Now, there might be a few hanging around, but let's be real. There was millions of people on this planet from 1915, and most of those houses aren't still here. But we confuse it with that it's good only because it lasted. And the reason I bring this up, going off of what I was talking about with Amy Morin, is because we look at the things that people do. That's easy. We What does Michael Jordan do to be the greatest? What is Uh, serena williams do to be the greatest Uh, what does brad pitt do to be the great whoever entered that person in their respective demographic we can talk about all things they do but what about the ones who did not make it the one of the biggest one i saw when i used to teach at the college people would say oh bill gates dropped out i had a student who dropped out the last week right before exams and she had a a borderline dc she had just came last week took the exam tried did okay did a few makeup assignments she would have got at least a C. but she didn't know what i want to chase my passion which wasn't a field of fashion, and that's not a very, it's a lucrative field, but not many people get into it. So the problem was that she wanted to pursue that. And you're talking to a dream chaser. I've chased many of my dreams. I'm doing one right now. So I'm not against that, but she was so close. But she was an example of, well, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs, all of them dropped out of college. Look where they got to. They all became billionaires. And the thing is, this is a this is a faulty way to think of it because they're survivors. They're the ones who made it. OK, that's three people that became billionaires. But what about the millions who dropped out of college who are working dead in jobs that they hate? We don't think about those people. And the reason why that's important is because those people are going to give us more insight. Because if we say start a business, hey, look at all these businesses that succeed, just like with Zuckerberg and all them. Great. What about the 95% that failed within the first five years? You're more than likely going to be those than the ones that become millionaires or billionaires. More than likely I hear people think and it's gonna be optimistic. That's what I'm saying. I never want to come off as a negative person or a pessimism, but you gotta be realistic. I'm a realist and you gotta understand where you're at. This goes even to confidence because if you understand where you're at, then you'll know where you need to go. And a lot of people don't do that. And that's going back to why when we fail, it hurts so much. You can even bring in it into a little bit of the neuroscience. Uh Dr. Huberman, Andrew Huberman talks about this a lot, but you talk about the peaks and valleys of like dopamine response because when we go for something, set a goal, we're trying to achieve something. Every time we go for it, we go a little higher up that valley. But when we fail, we, or I should say, we go higher up that peak. But when we fail, we come back down that valley. So the higher the peak, and if you don't make it you fail, the higher the fall back down. So guess what? You're reinforcing the brain. Dopamine has been to reinforce behavior to say, hey, you did that. People say reward, but it's not just necessarily a reward. It's more so uh, goal-directed or motivated behavior, because once I say, hey, this made me get what I needed, then I say, do it again. That's what the dopamine response, okay, the dopamine says, do that behavior that got the outcome that we want. And that's what happens with our goals. And when it comes back to survivorship bias, we make wrong choices, and we're going to set ourselves for the standard, and that response is going to be way higher, but we're not going to achieve it because we only think about the optimism. We need to look at the pessimism a little bit. That way we know, okay, that didn't work. You can learn a lot from the losers and the failures of history. And I I would personally argue you could learn more than the winners because we know the winner's story. They made it. They won. Of course, that's why they're winners. But the losers tell us what not to do. Ask the person who failed in business. He or she is going to give you a great story because they have a lot of ins and outs that the winner either did go through and just forgot because he wants to tell that story or they didn't go through them. And that's what got them catapulted to where they are. The failures are going to give you that insight, so this is something that you got to take into consideration when it comes to things. But uh, I'm gonna wrap this live up. Anyone tuning in right now have any more questions? Feel free to ask, let me know what you think. I, I don't I want to do these more frequently, maybe once or twice a month. I, I don't know. The last time I did a live, and I'm doing this directly on the podcast, so this. All this will be on the YouTube, Mr. Mental Muscle YouTube, on the Mental Muscle Podcast. So if you didn't make it, here it is. And if you want to see it again, if you didn't make it, it'll be there. So I'm going to wrap this thing up. And for everyone who uh, gave me some badges, donate it. Thank you for everything. And as always, guys, get your mind right.